You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. We have Dr. Wahid with us today, who will talk about a really interesting case he had in the beginning of his career. Thank you for having me back. Yes, uh, when you told me about this case a couple of weeks ago, I thought it would be a really good idea to, to go over it on the podcast. So maybe you can start off by talking a bit about how the patient presented to you initially. Uh, sure. This is actually a case I had when I was first becoming a staff in my first week of ever becoming a full licensed physician. And it was a patient that came in, I think it was on a Tuesday, it was earlier in the week, and came in with history of fevers and chills, abdominal pain and swelling slash dis- distension, some shortness of breath on exertion, and very generalized fatigue. So what was your initial diagnosis before you decided to admit him? So actually, I didn't admit him initially. I sent him for uh, all the appropriate tests. So I sent him for a panel of blood work. I sent him for chest x-rays for the shortness of breath. And I sent him for an abdominal ultrasound for the distension slash fluid overload in his abdomen. Uh, I told him to come back on the Friday by which time I would have all these results uh, available to me. So when you initially examined him, he was sick but stable. Correct. I think his pulse ox was in the low 90s. He was a smoker. His uh, blood pressure was in about 130s to 140s. His heart rate was about 80 to 90. He did not have a temp when he came to my office and uh, he was a little bit short of breath but our exam was pretty unremarkable other than that. So do you remember what your initial diagnosis was at that time? Well I, I definitely thought there was something infectious going on but with the smoking history I had to of course rule out a cardiac perspective especially with the shortness of breath and exertion. With the fluid overload slash abdominal distension, I didn't know what to make of that. Uh, he didn't drink very much, so I didn't suspect any uh, liver issues, but uh, possibly some uh, gallbladder issues. He was a little bit on the overweight side, but I wouldn't say he was obese. And he was a very tall man as well. So you decided to send him home. And uh, what happened next, Wahid? So he ended up getting all these investigations done. And sure enough, there were some positive findings. So he did have a light lower lobe infiltrate. He had some mildly elevated liver enzymes. I believe it was his GGT that was up a very small amount, and his um, AST was up a little bit. His ALT was normal. His boss was normal. And then he did have a slight white count at about 14 or 15. So what were you thinking at that point? So, of course... uh, I had a source for infection. I had a white count with the right lower lobe infiltrate. It made sense why the liver would be a little bit uh, elevated in enzymes. Uh, And with his presentation, it did all kind of fit with that sort of picture. But when he came back on Friday, when when I re-examined him, he actually looked sicker 
uh, I think he was febrile at this point. And so I started him on some antibiotics and asked him to come back to see me on Monday after the weekend to see how things were going. So obviously this time you were considering that this was most likely a pneumonia. However, there was a, there's a big twist to this case. Obviously that's why we're presenting it. So Wahid, can you, can you tell us what happened next? Uh, yeah, so the big twist is, uh, this is of course in a rural setting where I would look after my own inpatients and do some ER shifts. And so I was coming in to see my inpatients Sunday and found him on my list. And I kind of panicked as to why he got admitted on Saturday night when I had seen him on Friday and, you know, what had happened. He, yeah, he decompensated quite drastically. I spoke with the ER doctor to get handover. It turned out he came in with a rapid atrial fibrillation, uh, arrhythmia, uh, when he first came in, short of breath, chest pain, uh, the full nine yards. Now, my initial panic was I had started him on a macrolide by accident for the pneumonia. And uh, we know some of the macrolides do cause QT prolongation and possibly some arrhythmia issues. And we know azithromycin is particularly noted to have sudden cardiac death associated as a black label. So, that medicine. so were you sort of seeing the end of your career right there and then? Yeah, my first week as staff, and I'm, I'm already going to be <laughs> sued for malpractice. So I called all the pharmacists I knew to see whether or not this was a legitimate case of biaxin causing atrial fibrillation. And at that point, they told me that it's not associated with supraventricular tachycardia that they had known of, uh, mostly QT prolongation. So uh, it was very, very unlikely it was medicine I prescribed that had put him into this category. <laughs> Few, yeah, exactly. It's it's a big few on your on your side. So uh, not to belabor the point, and it's it's pretty obvious to our listeners what the diagnosis is based on the title of our podcast. But Wahid, what did uh, this gentleman end up having? So actually, I didn't even I hadn't even diagnosed him at this point because we uh, all know one of the precipitating causes for atrial fibrillation can be infection. So I still chalked him up to having a pneumonia, which then precipitated a uh, an atrial fibrillation, and with him being a smoker, a little bit overweight, uh, it wasn't out of ordinary that he would have some cardiac uh, issues. At this point, he did not have any choke rise, and he was uh, sort of rate controlled down to about 80 or 90. But where where it got interesting is on day two of admission, so this is now the Monday, he starts to develop leg swelling and increased shortness of breath with exertion and some orthopnea and paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, all the classical signs of CHF. The blood thickens. Of course. And uh, at this point, again, I thought, okay, he has some cardiac risk factors. Now, this gentleman at the time was late 40s, early 50s. So it now was becoming a little bit weird that he would turn from AFib to CHF without any pre-existing cardiac disease. I did send him for an echocardiogram to figure out why he might be in heart failure. Uh, of course, he did get better with high doses of Lasix, so I knew I was on the right track at this point. And Wahid, what did the, the echo show that that was really scary, you know, that, that sort of um, engraved this story in my mind uh, when you told it to me? The echo, 
was the scariest part. So in this particular community, there's only one cardiologist for about uh, a 200 kilometer radius. And he's exceptionally busy. And when you have a cardiac patient, it, you have to sell a couple of firstborn children to get him. Yeah, right. And in this particular case, I sent yet an echo dime, not, not expecting him to call me, but he personally called me while he was doing the echocardiogram and said, I want to keep this patient in ICU here at our secondary center. I'm like, oh, why? What happened? He's like, I can't actually measure his ejection fraction. (laughs) Less than 8%. I I can't actually put a number to it. And at that point, my mouth dropped a little bit, and he said, I, you're welcome to take him back, but he could die at any moment. And I said, yes, you keep him in your ICU. Uh, our little 12-bed hospital is probably not a place for a man with no ejection practice. That sounds like a rare case where the consultant was actually convincing you to keep the, <laughs> keep the patient. Um, wow. So, so this guy was in trouble. This guy was very sick. Yes. So then I spoke with the cardiologist as to the possibility of how he got so sick so quickly. And this is where our story begins for the podcast is with the white count and the pneumonia. The cardiologist suspected that this was a viral pneumonia, not a bacterial that spread quite quickly, got into his heart and caused viral myocarditis and is now very ill with, with the myocarditis in a fulminant congestive heart failure. Myocarditis, of course, being defined as inflammation of the myocardium. Wahid, do, do, you, do you know which virus uh, they suspected uh, had caused this? Was it uh, influenza? So the, well, he didn't think it was influenza at this point because it was in the beginning of summer. Mm-hmm. I believe he thought it was an adenovirus, though I don't think we ever got any tissue biopsies to confirm. Yeah, of course, adenovirus is one of the more popular uh, viruses that cause respiratory infection. Yeah, I believe you have the uh, the Coxsackie virus, the parvovirus, and I believe the human herpes virus that are often associated as well with uh, this condition. And of course, what's what's interesting about this guy is he 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 he's pretty much had the classic presentation of a myocarditis. He started off with the, the arrhythmia and then uh, ended up going into uh, into heart failure. And we prevented the sudden cardiac death. You know, you write about a sudden cardiac death. And, and really what's tricky about this, this condition is that you have this um, spectrum of different presentations from people who have myocarditis but have no symptoms to people who have some symptoms, you know, chest pain, maybe fever, myalgias, to people who have deadly symptoms such as sudden cardiac death or in this gentleman, what we call fulminant myocarditis. And I believe the definition of that is just acute congestive heart failure, acute severe congestive heart failure. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So when uh, myocarditis that actually causes disease ends up in some sort of either heart failure, arrhythmia, uh, basically the patient becomes unstable. Yeah, and, and they can obviously become stable very quickly. And in this case, it was, it was less than a week. So, so I guess when you think about some of the physical findings, obviously you, you, you'd have the findings of arrhythmia when you're doing the rhythm, um, and obviously the other 
the, the other part of it is fluid overload. So I'm curious because you had mentioned that this gentleman had had, uh, you know, an enlarged abdomen. Did did the did you do an ultrasound? Did you see any fluid in there that was that was caused by the heart failure? No. So at at that particular point, he wasn't. He just had a little bit of a fatty liver, and that's about it. Now you had you did mention some of the investigations you did initially. Did you do any cardiac investigations uh, when you first saw this patient? For example, did you do a, an ECG? Yeah, and I mind you, I did the ECG after he had presented to the emergency department, and at that point he had uh, an SVT versus an AFib, and once they treated it, they did learn it was an AFib because it can it can present with. AFib, but it can also present with some non-sustained VTAC. So mm -hmm. Did you guys do any cardiac biomarkers? We did. We did tro tropes, and uh, they weren't elevated at that for, at the time we did them when he first came in. I think it's uh, it's in, in up to thirty percent of of patients with myocarditis. These markers can actually be elevated. Now I remember we had done an an X-ray as well, which sort of knew. Pneumonia. Now, I guess at that time you didn't see any evidence of fluid overload in on the uh, in the lungs. Not yeah, not the initial uh, chest X-ray when he came to my office, but of course the later chest X-ray when he started to get the pedal edema, the PND and orthopnea. That X-ray did show some pulmonary vasculature. Uh, Congestion. Really, the, the key test here ended up being the echocardiogram, right? That, that's ultimately what put everything in place for you and allow you to make the diagnosis. Yeah, and of course, that's not even a gold standard of testing either. So we got, we got lucky that after so many testing, we, we got something that stayed positive. So what is the gold standard then, uh, Wahid? Well, I need a biopsy of the myocardium. Good luck getting that. <laughs> yeah, I can certainly imagine that heart biopsies are done relatively rarely. I think the argument ultimately is that it should be done if it changes management. And my understanding is it often does not change management when you're dealing with viral myocarditis, but might if you're dealing with other types of myocarditis. But th this is really disturbing, I have to say. It's not, um, you know, when you started talking the, about this case, I really didn't know where it was going. And it's it quite challenging. And maybe, Wahid, you can tell me, what are some of the things in retrospect that would have clued you in that uh, this is what was happening? To be honest, I, it wasn't even on my radar when he first came in. So, I, of course, I did mention I was thinking heart as a possibility. But it was very difficult, and it took a week and a half of investigating to figure it out. But whereas the symptoms became more heart-related, I think that's when it shed light that there's something else going on that's not just pneumonia. And yeah, again, the disturbing part of this is that anybody can get this condition. Even athletes can get it. There was actually a study looking at the fact that viral myocarditis may be the cause of sudden cardiac death in 20% of people. And we're talking about athletes dropping dead, people going into shock for no reason or in retrospect, for a good reason. Uh, people with really no risk factors becoming really, really sick because of this condition. Now, your patient did have some risk factors. Yeah. I think, again, going through the case and going through the, the whole presentation of myocarditis, 
it's something that should be suspected in, in patients who with no risk factors for heart problems or, or, or light risk, risk factors for heart problems presenting with these severe issues such as arrhythmias, uh, heart failures, shock, or, or even in some cases death. I guess that that will be the clue. Exactly, like like you said, he he fit the mold quite well, but this is after uh, we waited on it a little bit. And yeah, again, in retrospect, it was pretty obvious what was happening. But when you're in the thick of it, in the moment of it, if you're not, if you don't have a wide, a broad differential, it can be quite challenging. Uh, maybe we can talk a bit about treatment. Obviously. Treatment is symptom-based, so if you're dealing with arrhythmias, you have to deal with the arrhythmia. If you're dealing with fluid overload and heart failure, you have to deal with that. Uh, so can you tell me, after the initial management of this patient, what happened to him? What, what, they did, what did they do with him, the specialist? So he ended up staying in ICU for a little bit and then uh, being sent home once he, once he did get better. Unfortunately, he's had lasting deficits. I, I see him usually every summer. That's when I go up work in this uh, small town. And when he does come in, it becomes a challenge. His ejection fraction is probably in the 20 to 30% at best now. He is on disability. He was a short order cook who can't work anymore because he gets too short of breath carrying a, a sack of potatoes, for example, or a large pot of any kind. In terms of therapy, he being treated as a congestive heart failure. If you have to classify him, he's probably NYHA three to four. Oh um, yeah, at, a, at, at in his mid fifties, so he he's not doing well. So he's on you know the usual cocktails of ACE inhibitors, beta blockers. He's on the spironolactone, consistent basics. He's on chronic warfarin for his atrial fibrillation, which has persisted, though it's rate-controlled, but it has persisted all these years. Yeah, and it's, it's obviously this was a life-changing event for this poor gentleman, really functionally debilitating. It's, it's unfortunate. I, I, was, I was reading a bit about the prognosis for viral myocarditis, and what they do say is people that present with fulminant myocarditis tend to do better if they can survive the initial, I mean, the initial disease process. It seems that uh, they have less left ventricular dilation. But uh, I guess this guy was just very unlucky because he, he didn't do well at all, even though he had fulminant heart failure. No, I, and I think I, even though he had fulminant because he was otherwise young and healthy he was able to hold on so he wasn't in shock and didn't get sick rapidly enough that we i, I think he didn't hit that more that, that particular mold of being saved quickly and preventing any further complications it took us a while to figure it out and i think that may have diminished his quality of life it's a really scary disorder. It, it again, it, it's it's hard to diagnose if you're not looking for it. And and as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, it it's crazy. Up, up to twenty percent uh, of sudden deaths can be explained by by myocarditis. Maybe not viral every time, but certainly myocarditis. I mean, I personally know what it knew what it was. I 
I have read about it, but I, I never really kept it as part of my differential for these these presentations. And that's what disturbed me about this case, and that's why I thought it was important we talk about it. So let me ask you, Wahid, that now, now that you've gone through this process, do you always keep this as a differential in the back of your mind when you have somebody coming in with these cardiac symptoms? So I, I currently work in another institution where the cardiologist gets mad at me for over-ordering echocardiograms. So I think it has played some role in my differential diagnosis from there on in. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I wouldn't say I think of it all the time, but I, when I start having weird symptoms, especially cardiac symptoms in relatively young folks, I start questioning whether or not there's something else going on and almost always order an echocardiogram now. And, and how many firstborn children do you have to give that cardiologist to get an echocardiogram? Between the cardiologists and then the radiologist to get MRIs done, I don't think I have enough firstborn children between me or my family left. <laughs> so if I can summarize, to our colleagues out there, keep viromyocarditis as part of your differential, especially when you're dealing with patients who are relatively healthy and are presenting with odd cardiac symptoms. A 30-year-old coming in with heart failure or a weird arrhythmia with some sort of remote history of an infection, usually one or two weeks before, consider this as a differential and get the specialists involved as soon as you can. Wahid, I really uh, I do w really want to thank you for, for talking about this case. I, I for Personally, it was very useful for me and has, has brought in my differential quite a bit and I think made, made me a better doctor. So again, thank you for coming in and talking to us and hope to see you again. Thank you very much. <laughs>